This is episode 11 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, the feature is The Great Morrow. We'll also be doing a quick overview of some of the past episodes. Stay tuned for episode 11 of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 11. It's also the first episode for the year 2019. It's actually January 1st as I'm recording this, just past the midnight hour, so I'm fresh into the new year and ready to kick off uh, and do a lot with the Magic Detective Podcast, by the way. Uh, I thought we would start, though, with uh, just a quick... um, I don't know if it's an overview, but I just want to go over some things in some past episodes. The first one is kind of funny to me, personally. Uh, It happened in episode two. I told a story called How Yuri Geller Fixed My Doorbell. If you didn't hear the story, you should go back to episode two and listen to the story. But I got an email from a listener who uh, actually said to me, you do know that Yuri Geller did not fix your doorbell. So, um, yes, I know that it's, uh, <laughs> you have to go back and listen to it. It's, um, it makes a funny story to tell. Of course, I know that Yuri Geller did not fix my doorbell, but, um, anyway, so there's that. I'm, hopefully I've cleared that up for everybody that didn't know otherwise. Um, episode four, the Survey Leroy episode. This is as of now the third highest listened to podcast on the Magic Detective and, um, I am kind of sorry um, for the episode. I, I, I think I, um, I don't know, it's my own personal critique. I messed it up. Uh, it's a good episode, but I should have told you the whole story of, of uh, Survey Leroy rather than just the end of his life. I didn't really give you a whole lot of information about the early part of his life. So uh, I'm going to have to make up for that in a future episode and tell you about the wonderful life of Survey Leroy, as well as uh, Mercedes Talma and the various people that played uh, Bosco in the show, in the Monarchs of Magic show. So look for that in the future. Um, You already know what the end is, but in the future, I'll do the beginning. So that was episode four. During the um, during the three episodes on Harry Keller, uh, which have gotten a lot of response, I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I mentioned a trick that is called a starte that Keller performed, and a starte was a creation of William Robinson and William Wood and BB Keys, and I think I may have alluded to the fact that maybe it wasn't a very good uh, illusion. It was a levitation. Um, but a kind of an unusual levitation. And I based my opinion of the illusion on a performance that Doug Henning did on one of his magic specials back in the, maybe the early 80s. I think it was 1980, actually. And he levitated um, uh, Shields and Yarnell. So uh, I forget what her name is, but the Yarnell girl. Um, He levitated her. And it's an interesting illusion, but I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say great um, by any stretch. At least in that performance, what I didn't realize is that Astarte was recreated again by John Gaughan at one of the uh, LA conferences on magic history 
uh, back a couple years ago. And it just so happens that in Genie Magazine, that when they did a review of this particular conference, they had a video of the Astarte performance. Now, they, the video I watched didn't have the sound. It just had the, you know, of course, the video, but no sound. Um, and oh my gosh, is that ever an amazing illusion. It's an amazing levitation. So, um, oh, and look, people are texting me here while I'm recording the Magic Detective podcast and saying, Happy New Year. Anyway, so what happens is, is the girl is standing upright on the stage and she floats up, apparently on her own accord, floats up vertically, and she begins to walk like she's walking on air across the stage and she can even stop and like, like walk up at like an imaginary wall and then upside down, like she's walking on a ceiling and then back around, like she's inside this invisible box. And, um, it's, it's incredible to see and she can float, she can twist, she can turn. There seems to be a freedom of movement that you don't get in other levitations of that time period. It's really really cool. And I I think the video is like four minutes long. And I was seriously spellbound by watching it. I really was taken at how great it is. Now, um, can you see the video? Maybe, maybe. And here's how I'll tell you, you can see it. It's, uh, I believe it's the January 2014 issue of Genie Magazine. You've got to be a subscriber to Genie Magazine so that you can get the digital version. But if you are a subscriber to Genie Magazine and you you have access to the digital version, it's in the uh, the column that is covers the review of the uh, LA Conference on Magic History. And you'll see a little uh, video link there. Only 39 people have viewed this video. So I would encourage you to go check it out because it's, it's so cool gotta see it's called a starte and um it's a wonderful performance and i can't i can't i can't uh, say enough good things about it um it looks a lot better than when doug henning performed it and i think maybe that is i don't know if the um if it was changed at all in the design of it or if it's just uh, the choreography is different um there wasn't a whole lot of choreography in the doug henning version but this one has so much more, and it's just amazing. So, I, like I said, can't say enough good things about it. And before we get into the feature um, of today's episode, I do want to just recognize some names. Uh, these are people that passed away in 2018. And um, I think it's very important to remember these folks. Some are names that will be hard to forget, and others are names you might not be familiar with. And I would encourage you to, uh, if you don't recognize a name, to look them up because um, one of the great things about the world of magic, we we tend to have long memories and uh, we remember people for a long time, whereas in, I think in other industries, they may be forgotten pretty quickly. Uh, Although people do get forgotten in our business as well. And uh, in fact, one of those people that gets forgotten is the feature of today's episode. But... um, so here are some names. They're not in the particular order that they passed away, but just uh, how I happen to write them down. Uh, the first one is David Linsel, who was a photographer for magicians. Uh, Lehman Parker, who uh, died way too young. Walter Graham. Brian Gillis. Ken Dodd from England. Clarence Miller. June Horowitz. 
Moyo Miller Montes, who was uh, actually an assistant for the great Dante. Johnny Hart, who just passed away recently. Uh, Barry Wiley, who was a magic historian who wrote a wonderful book on Anna Eva Fay and a couple others as well. Arthur Emerson, who worked with Larry West and created a, a lot of uh, really cool packet tricks in the 1970s. Pete Byro, who just passed away also. Uh, Harry Anderson, who I still have a hard time believing that Harry Anderson has passed away. That I don't know why that one bothers me so much, but it really gets to me... Um, that Harry is gone. And then the other one that is so such a shocker is Ricky Jay, who also just recently passed away. Um, wow. Those are some really big names and, um, and magic is uh, lesser for, um, having them gone now. Um, but we can remember them and we should, and, uh, we should honor their, their memory by, uh, talking about them and researching them and continuing to do their magic, if at all possible. So that is uh, just a remembrance of some of the people we lost in 2018. It's not a complete list by any stretch of the imagination. And I apologize if there was someone important to you that I didn't mention in the magic world. Um, my apologies, but uh, it was uh, I did the list pretty quickly, so... Well, let's get into today's uh, today's feature. And as I mentioned, this is a guy who, um, frankly, uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with. Uh, he's been forgotten by the magic world for the most part. His name, uh, we know him as the Great Morrow. And if you ask, you know, 12 magicians who was the Great Morrow, you might get 12 different answers. Or you might get 11 answers that are the same, which are, I have no idea. And then one person guessing. Uh, the great Morrow began his career, began his life as Walter Truman Best. That's his real name. He was born September 25th, 1869 in Montpelier, Vermont. As a boy of 11, his father drowns in an accident. And after his father's death, uh, Walter and his mom, they moved to Iowa. While in Iowa, uh, young Walter Best is apprenticed by a, a photographer, and he lives at the photography studio, lives in the back, and it's kind of a side note. While he's there, he finds a, a, this book and uh, on how to play the guitar. It happened to be a book and a guitar, so at night, he would actually teach himself how to play guitar from this book. Um, a short time after becoming this photographer's apprentice, the photographer vanishes into the night. Apparently, I guess the creditors or whatever were after him, and uh, Walter keeps the equipment that he has, and he uh, packs up and he moves to uh, Kansas City. And while he's in Kansas City, one of his first gigs as a photographer is for a lady. She, he's going to take some family photos for her. And he is setting up his uh, photography equipment when he hears a sound. It's a musical sound, and he kind of recognizes it, and he asks the woman, what is, what is that? What is that sound? And she says, oh, that's my daughter. She's learning how to play guitar. And uh, Best says, uh, guitar, do you mind if I 
could I see this? And she, oh yeah, sure. So she calls her daughter in, and and the daughter plays a you know a little bit of a song, and then hands the guitar to Best, and Best begins to play the guitar. And it's at that moment, or a few moments later, that Best is fired. He's fired as a photographer, and instantly hired as the music instructor for this young girl because he's apparently such a good guitar player. Keep in mind, Walter Truman Best has never heard anyone play guitar. He's only He only learned it by reading a book, and um, apparently he's really good. So uh, Best decides, well, you know, I'm a, maybe I'm onto something, and he goes into, into town, into Kansas City, and he finds a music store. And while he's in the music store, he sees a guitar hanging and he points to it and he says, could I see that? And the owner says, yes, sure, and hands him the guitar and Best begins to play play the guitar. And much like the earlier story, um, the owner looks at him and says, excuse me, could I interest you in giving lessons here at the stores? And thus begins his career there in Kansas City. Now, uh, Walter Best is living at a boarding house in Kansas City, along with some other people. And I guess in the evening, all the boarders get together in the parlor and they share their stories of their day or whatever. And Best, from time to time, probably plays the guitar. And another boarder that lives there um, gets up and he does a card trick. And this blows Best's mind. He has never seen magic before. He'd never heard the guitar played. Now he's never seen magic. What is this? He has to know uh, what this is, what this, this this thing is. So he talks to this fellow and he says, you know, what is this? How is this? Can you teach it to me? And uh, the fellow says, yeah, I'll, I'll teach you how to do the trick. The fellow's name is Albert Wilson and teaches him how to do... Uh, how to do this particular trick actually encourages him to get a, a magic book. And I believe, although it's not recorded, but I believe the book he probably got was professor Hoffman's modern magic because it was during that time period. So that's very likely the book that he picked up. And uh, by the way, this, um, uh, Albert Wilson fellow, if you're, uh, you probably don't know the name, Albert Wilson actually learned his magic from Robert Heller. And you've heard me mention Robert Heller a couple times during the podcast uh, in previous episodes, and there'll be an actual Robert Heller episode coming up in the future. But uh, Albert Wilson worked for um, Robert Heller. You might know Albert Wilson better by his official name, which was Dr. A.M. Wilson, and he would eventually become the editor of the Sphinx magazine. So this is who... uh, who Best runs into early in his life. Now, in 1890, Best moves to Chicago, and he opens a guitar and mandolin school. And it was also around this time, around 1890, that Best changes his name from Walter Truman Best to Edward Morrow. Uh, Sometimes it's written in magic history books as Edmund Morrow, but it's, it's Edward Morrow is what it's supposed to be. And I, this is his personal opinion, um, I think it was a mistake to, to change his name tomorrow. He had, no pun intended, he had the best name, really. I mean, when your last name is Best, how can you beat that? How can you get better than Best? You know, the, the, he's the best magician. Come on, that's the greatest name. But in any case, he did change his name to Edward Morrow. Now, in 1892, 
Um, this building, by the way, where he has the guitar and mandolin school, in the same building, there's a Lyceum circuit in there, the, a booking agency, basically. And in 1892, they hire Best to, uh, to do shows for their bureau. He's hired to do music shows for the Bureau. And he's out one day doing a show, and he's, he works with uh, several other musicians. And apparently in one of the sets, a musician breaks a string or something, and um, uh, Morrow now, we'll, go, we'll call him Morrow from here on out, Morrow says, well, he's, you know, he's got to fix his instrument, so what do I do? And, oh, wait, I'll do a magic trick. That's what I'll do. So while the other musician is fixing his instrument, Morrow does a magic trick which apparently, by all accounts, is very well received. The Bureau finds out about it, and they're intrigued, and they kind of encourage him to continue this process. Over a very short period of time, this music act that worked with the Lyceum Bureau um, changes. It, it Now the feature is magic, and the secondary role is the music. Morrow is the first magician to work the Lyceum Bureau. And I want to back up just slightly. There were two kind of circuits or bureaus at this time. There was the Chautauqua and then there was the Lyceum. And just so you know the difference, because you may have heard the names, but not familiar with what they are. The Chautauqua were basically done in the summertime and they were done under big tents, big, big, you know, like, like, you know, circus tent like things, but it wasn't a circus. They, they were, uh, you have lectures, scientific, uh, you know, demonstrations, um, singers, uh, you know, tended to be fairly sophisticated, although there were magicians that worked in the Chautauqua circuit. The Lyceum circuit, though, didn't, they weren't, they didn't perform under tents. They performed in lecture halls, so they could perform year round. The one difference between the two is there were no magicians working in the Lyceum Bureau. Morrow was the very first. He was the originator of magic shows in the Lyceum Bureau. After he kind of breaks that mold, um, he's quickly followed by folks like Eugene Laurent, Carl Germain, Edwin Brush, and others. Uh, the Sphinx magazine, under the tutelage of Dr. A.M. Wilson, claims Morrow is the most copied magician because of how many magicians followed Morrow into the Lyceum circuit. Pretty cool trivia there. In 1899, Morrow marries Allie Mae Kaiser, who soon becomes his onstage assistant. Now, you may be wondering, what kind of magic did this Morrow do? Well, he had, um, had, a, had an interesting act. It was a three-part act. And the first part, um, it was called An Evening of Mystery, Melody, and Mirth. That, you know, that's what he called it. And, uh, and actually, it was a pretty good name. And his title was... The versatile Morrow Prince of Magic. So he was really known as the Prince of Magic. The opening of the show included things like the Morrow Slates, the Spirit Dial, uh, the Aluminum Rings, which that's what he called it. It was the Linking Rings, but they were really large, oversized Linking Rings. And I imagine they were probably like what Pop Hayden uses today. They're really, I don't know what size that is, really large uh, linking ring. And I think Morrow, that's the size Morrow was using. He also performed something called the Cabinet of Balsamo, and then um, something he called the Flags of the World, which is the Flags of All Nations. Now, um, just incidentally, this uh, trick called the Morrow Slates 
I love this trick. And I actually performed it on that French documentary that I mentioned previously in another podcast, which you can see on my blog, themagicdetective.com. The, the link to the video is there. And I actually present the Morrow Spirit Slates. It's a non-gimmick version of Spirit Slates. It's just really cool. Um, okay, back to Morrow. So uh, Morrow is uh, late 1800s, um, early 1900s. And magicians of that time period, late Victorian era, they all were using uh, center tables. And these center tables were generally at that time period, very ornate and uh, highly gimmicked. They had pistons, they had traps, they had all sorts of stuff in them. And um, Morrow's table was no different. Uh, but what made his table unique this was the first item ever built by Gus Rodeberg of Chicago, of the Rodeberg Magic Company. So the very first item that that company ever built was Morrow's Table. And this was done through the arrangement of Dr. A.M. Wilson, which is kind of a cool little thing there as well. The Cabinet of Balsamo that I mentioned, I think this is a, a kind of a spirit cabinet type effect along the lines of the Casadega propaganda that Keller had in his show. Basically, it was a small, small rectangular cabinet that fit on two sawhorses, but not the kind like, like the Davenport cabinet that per, a person could get inside. This was much smaller. Um, some spirit slates, some bells, tambourine or whatever would go inside and all the spirit manifestations would happen as soon as you closed the doors. I, I'm pretty sure that's what the cabinet of Balsamo was. The two major features in Morrow's act were the flags of all nations or the flags of the world and the meteoric ribbons. Now the meteoric ribbons, um, it's kind of a cool effect from his bare hands. He would produce hundreds of yards of colored ribbon. And then at some particular point after he had like loads and loads of, uh, colored ribbon, he'd reach underneath and produce a, an enormous umbrella, just, just humongous umbrella. And those were two of his uh, big features there. Part two of the show was music, art, and shadography. Now, you know what shadography is, hand shadows and that kind of thing. His music, though, was not like the music that he was doing early on where he was playing guitar or saxophone or whatever. In this portion of the show, Morrow was playing his own instruments. So he had a an one, inst one string instrument he invented called the goggle peg that he played, and it was just apparently a wonderful musical novelty. And then another device called the, it's either called the Jayona or the Javona, and I'm not sure which, but it's one of those two. It was like a, a, a tubular percussion sort of uh, thing, and apparently just had the most heavenly music came out of this thing. And then the, uh, the art came from rapid sketches that Morrow would do. So besides being a great musician, a great magician, he was also an artist apparently as well. Now we get to part three of the performance and part three has such an original name. It's called 40 minutes more of magic. So, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure how long the first two sections were, but you got to figure they're over an hour and, and now you get 40 more minutes of, uh, of magic. So, and, and the, the, the latter part, it, um, it's very vague in the descriptions, but what I, I get the impression, uh, Morrow did a lot of, um, 
a lot of audience volunteer stuff. So he borrowed rings, borrowed handkerchiefs, and did magic involving the audience in the latter part of the show. Brilliant move on his part. Listen to this. At the height of his career, Morrow was making $3,000 a week. And that was back then. $3,000 a week back then. Or roughly $100,000 a week at the turn of the century. Imagine that. He invested a lot of this money in lakefront property in Leland, Michigan. He actually built a summer home along with several other buildings. He had a, a guest house and a workshop and some other things. The house he built was called Marinook, and it's on the shores of Lake Leland now, and it's still there. In fact, I had the opportunity to see it a couple years ago when I was uh, in that area, and it's a very unusual home, very beautiful home, and at the time that I saw it, it was also for sale for several million dollars, and uh, just a beautiful property built by the great Morrow. Now, I, I want to just change course just a little bit, still talking about Morrow, but this time about Morrow's posters. Every magician uh, of any um, prominence had magic posters. This is, you know, you have to realize this is before radio and television and internet and all this kind of stuff, before any sort of mass media. So they were using full color uh, lithographs to advertise their, their shows. And Morrow had a number of them. And all of them, for the most part, they depicted him and uh, performing different effects uh, for the most part. And they're all beautiful posters. But as you look at them, you realize that there's something missing. And when I say there's something missing, it's not, um, it's not color per se, but uh, because the, in regards to the full color ones, um, what's missing are the devils. There are no devils in his posters. And you had Herman, you had Keller, you had Thurston, Blackstone, other magicians of the time period. They all had these little devilish imps in all their advertising. And here was the great Morrow. None of that. In fact, there is a really cool cartoon that was uh, in the Sphinx magazine that actually makes fun of this whole thing. And, and I will put a copy of that on... Um, on my blog, themagicdetective.com, on the notes for episode 11, so you can see uh, what the cartoon is, but it's really great. Morrow was a well-known performer in the magic world. He appeared on the cover of The Sphinx and the cover of Mahatma magazine. His final days, now listen to this. These are his final days. Both Morrow and Eugene Laurent were both booked to play Bridgetown, New Jersey at the same place. And Morrow finds out about this, that they're both, he and Laurent are both booked there. And he sends a note to Laurent and says, leave something for me, please. Because he knows these guys working the Lyceum circuit are doing the same material that Morrow's doing. And uh, so Laurent leaves out a couple things, you know, he, he, they're, they're friends, you know, friendly competitors. And he does leave out some things. Morrow performs his last show with a temperature of 104. Now, after this, he makes it to Bridgetown, New Jersey. The show is completely set up, but unfortunately, Morrow never performs. Instead, he's so sick, he's taken to a hospital in Philadelphia. 
while he's there at the the hospital in Philadelphia. He's visited every day by none other than Harry Keller. Keller actually considered Morrow one of the best performers alive. Visited him, like I said, every day. February 26, 1908. Morrow dies of typhoid fever at the age of only 38 years old. His final resting place is at the North Cemetery in St. Charles, Illinois, in the Alley uh, Best's family plot. There is a giant six-ton boulder, which actually came from Maranook, uh, the Maranook property, and it marks his, his grave. And today, that six-ton boulder is sitting upright with a cement base around it, courtesy of uh, Terry Evanswood, who actually took it upon himself to have that done. So we greatly appreciate that. Now, Morrow, as I said, died at 38 years old. Had Morrow lived, listen to this, he would have signed a two-year contract to perform in Australia because he was just getting ready to do that. As far back as 1896, Morrow had started working on setting up a tour in Mexico, which never came to pass, but he was learning Spanish so that when he signed the contract to do the tour, he could actually perform his whole show in Spanish. David DeVant was actually interested in bringing Morrow over to England in order to perform at Egyptian Hall. And had he lived, perhaps Morrow would have been, and I believe he would have been, counted among the greats like Keller, Thurston, Dante, Blackstone, and others. Now, after Morrow, there were some people keeping his name alive, and those people were his pupils. J. Elder Blackledge, was one in particular. Uh, Blackledge, as a boy, vacationed with his family there on the uh, uh, in Leland, Michigan, and met Morrow while he was there. And Morrow taught Blackledge some uh, some magic. Years later, when Morrow died, um, Ali Best gave J. Elder Blackledge the cabinet of Balsamo as a gift. Another pupil was Lewis McCord who first saw Morrow perform in Philadelphia. And McCord would actually take lessons from Alonzo Moore, who was an assistant to Morrow. Eventually, Lewis took Morrow's name and changed the letters around a little bit um, and became known as Silent Mora. So instead of Morrow, he was Mora. And just a little side note here, when Morrow died suddenly, um, Silent Mora was just... Naturally, he was grieving, but he felt terribly guilty for having taken Morrow's name. And he sent a letter to Allie Best just apologizing profusely for what he had done. And by all accounts, he never heard back. But um, it's kind of a sad note there. Another friend of Morrow's was Carl Germain, who um, had befriended Mrs. Best and also helped her in selling off a lot of Morrow's equipment after he passed. And apparently, uh, apparently, Jermaine and Morrow's widow may have had a romantic relationship, although probably short-lived. Um, from Morrow's estate, Jermaine received the meteoric ribbons, the flags of all nations, or the flags of the world, and the Dr. Faust padlock. And the padlock, which we all know today as, as the Jermaine spirit padlock, was not original with Jermaine. I was a little surprised by this, but sure enough. And actually, it wasn't original with Morrow either. Apparently, the spirit padlock was uh, first owned by Charles Bertram in England, and uh, Morrow got it from Bertram, and then it went to Germain. And now I think, I think Tim Moore has it in his collection, I think. Houdini. Does Houdini fit in the picture? 
I can't actually say if Houdini knew Morrow. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, if he did know Morrow, but I haven't tracked that down yet. But what I do know, there is a Morrow or a, is a Morrow Houdini connection, and it's this, and this is really, really cool. There was a cabinet illusion built that was known as the Mystery of Arian, and Morrow had this built, and um, of course he passed away, and the cabinet was sold to John Gardenia, who purchased it from Morrow's widow. Well, Houdini bought it from John Gardenia, and he had plans to put it in his show in the 1927 season. And if you're familiar, Houdini never got to perform the 1927 season because he died in the fall of 1926. But he had this mystery of Arian purchased and ready to go to put in the show uh, during that, you know, the 27 season. What was the mystery of Arian? I, to be honest with you, uh, it's only a guess. I'm guessing it was either some sort of uh, box to make somebody appear, or it maybe was um, a version of a spirit cabinet. I don't know. It's, it's I only have a single photo of it, and I can't really tell from the photo. So there's that. Now, um, something that Allie Best had done, she actually, um, of course, she was quite wealthy because of the money that uh, her husband made throughout his life. She actually donated money to have the W.T. Best Women's Club built in town in Leland, Michigan. And within the building is the W.T. Best Theater. And basically today, the, uh, the building is actually the Leland Community Center. There is a stage there that I have had the honor to perform upon. It's pretty cool. And uh, they bring out chairs and everything whenever they have performances. And they've had uh, a number of uh, magicians perform there. Um, there's a, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Well, actually, I'll tell, tell it another time. I'll tell you. The place is haunted. All right. So, um, and something strange happened in my shows, which was creepy. But anyway, let's get back to best. So, um. In 1905, while Best was still alive, a group of Morrow's friends, magic friends, gave him a rare print of Cagliostro. And the print included this inscription. It said, Let Cagliostro rest in peace. Let praise of old magicians cease. For we can all the rest forego. We have the prince, our own Moreau. And that's from Moreau's friends. Uh, and who would know, they had no way of knowing that in only three short years, Morrow would be gone. He would have passed on. So that's the story of the great Morrow or the great Moreau, and um, whose real name was Walter Truman Best. And I'm going to put on the magicdetective.com blog some of uh, Morrow's posters, and I'll put that cartoon up there as well. Uh, so you can check it out. And um, so, okay, I'll tell you the story really quick because it's kind of a funny story. So I, the um, community center there asks me to come and do a lecture on the great Morrow. And um, so I created the, you know, what I assume is the first ever lecture on the great Morrow uh, with the PowerPoint presentation. And whenever I do lectures, magic lectures for uh, lay people, I usually try to include magic in the process. And in that particular uh, presentation, I did uh, the spirit dial. I did some uh, shadography and I did Morrow's spirit slates and a couple other, thing, uh, other things as well. 
was very, very well received. But they also asked me to do uh, two shows for the general public. And in both shows, something odd happened in both shows. Now, um, one of my routines that I have performed thousands of times, I've performed it uh, in theaters and um, on TV and just everywhere you can imagine, I have performed this particular thing. It's the, the linking hula hoops. And uh, it's kind of become a signature routine for me because I've taken what was Dick Zimmerman's routine and, you know, completely changed it. And um, everyone else I know does the Zimmerman routine. I do not. Anyway, to make a long story short, never had a problem with the, the linking hula hoops. Every, everything's fine. Everything always goes well. It's very well received. It's a great trick. And on this particular day, I'm performing the linking hula hoops and I get to the grand finale of separating the four hula hoops and they won't come apart. They are actually stuck together. And I, I don't know what's going on because it's never happened before. And um, I'm pulling on them and they're not coming apart. And the music ends and I just kind of, I hold them up and everyone, no one knows that there was a mistake there. It's the first time they've seen it. So they think that's how it's supposed to end. And um, I go on with the rest of the show. Like it's like, it's no big deal. I cannot for the life. I'm thinking about it throughout the whole show. What in the world happened? How, how are these things, you know, they're, they're really firmly uh, joined together. I cannot get them apart to save my life. So anyway, I had set them aside. I went on with the rest of the show. It was no big deal. When the show was over, um, said goodbye to everybody and got ready for a second show. And, uh, the sound guy comes over and he goes, Hey, he goes, I forgot to mention this place is haunted. And I was like, really? It's haunted. And I got to thinking about the, the linking hula hoops. And I, I walked over to the hula hoops just to find out what exactly was going on. And they were all separate. They were no longer joined together like they were at the end of the show. And that has never happened, ever. Never happened before, never happened in rehearsal, never happened in another show since. Um, I don't even know how it can happen. I've tried to make it happen. No idea. So I always say that the great Morrow was uh, having fun with my show, as it were, while I was performing. So that's the story of the great Morrow, Walter Truman Best. I hope you've enjoyed that story, a story about a lesser-known magician who should have been one of the greats. And that's episode 11 of the Magic Detective Podcast. I do want to mention a couple other things really quickly. Uh, my buddy uh, and friend Denny Haney of Denny's Magic Studio in Baltimore, Maryland, could really use your help. Um, he has uh, been diagnosed with stage four cancer, and he has uh, uh, cancer in a couple different places, from what I understand. And there has been a GoFundMe page set up to raise money uh, for Denny's medical expenses. So if you go to gofundme.com and just type in the search engine, type in Denny Haney, you'll see his page come up. And if you could uh, find it in your heart to donate something, uh, that would be greatly appreciated uh, by all. And uh, we wish Denny the best. Um, what else? Uh, I'm sure I have news I'm forgetting, so sorry about that. Um, I will say that I do, I'm going to have a lot more episodes coming up. I, I don't know when the next one's going to be out because I will be finally returning to Virginia 
in a few days, and I have a whole lot to do to get my performing career back in order because I've been uh, I've been off the off the grid for three months, as it were. So uh, I've got to get that uh, restarted and going again. So uh, so maybe a couple weeks before you see a next another episode, episode twelve. Uh, but stay tuned because uh, there'll be more coming out. And oh, and don't forget to like and share and subscribe to the page. Please like the episodes because the more you like the episodes, the more people go, hey, if more than one person liked that episode, maybe I should listen to it. So, and you can like them on any of the platforms, whether it's on Google or Stitcher or, or uh, Podbean, which is what I'm on, or um, any number of the different ones that I'm on, you can, you can like it, you can leave a comment and I would really appreciate it if you left a comment as well and, uh, and subscribe. So, you know, before everybody else, when these episodes are coming out so you don't miss any, cause there's a lot of great content here. So once again, my name is Dean Carnegie. This is episode 12, oh, I'm sorry, episode 11 of the magic detective podcast. And I'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Oh, and happy new year. <laughs>